Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissing. And this is the show for you if you're bored with people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our brilliant guest this week is a staff writer at Spiked Online and the host of the Spiked podcast, Fraser Myers. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you here. We've been meaning to get you on for a while and we're glad that you're here. For anyone who doesn't know you, just tell us very quickly, who are you, what's your background, how are you, where you are? Um, so I write for Spiked, which I think is the, the best magazine in the world. Um, probably the only magazine standing up today for you know absolute free speech, uh, democracy, no ifs, no buts, and for you know a very humanist, pro-human centred uh, outlook. Uh, have you read The Guardian? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I have. We've had a few run-ins with them, you know. Um, and I, I guess I mean you, you know, it's it's. I have kind of a funny journey, I guess. I mean, I. I I'm a massive, massive Brexit supporter, so I might as well get that out now. You know. Well, when you said democracy, I... no, if no buts, I think everybody yeah. got the, the hidden message. Yeah. Well, you'd, you'd, you'd hope so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I guess I'm not a typical, well, I, I didn't have the typical journey to being a Brexiteer. You know, I speak two foreign languages. I speak French and German. I studied them at university. And it was it's funny because it was actually while I was on my year abroad, doing the Erasmus thing that is supposed to turn me into the, you know, perfect EU citizen, um, Remainer type. That was also the year where things were, you know, really hitting the fan in, in Europe. And that was when, you know, certain doubts about this wonderful European Union started to creep in. Yeah, so, the French will do that to you, won't they? <laughs> <laughs> well, like, yeah, and it, it, was really, it was really funny because it was actually a lot, of, a lot of it as well as in Germany and nothing mm. bad was really happening there. Yeah. But lots of bad things were happening in, in Greece yeah. and you could see that, you know, the, it, the, you know not only had the, a referendum been ignored um, over, the, over the proposed bailouts, but there was going to be um, austerity for the next 70 years proposed by the European Union. So, you know, these, so these kind of things are like, oh, maybe this isn't a, this isn't what I thought it is. You know, I, I'd always been a sort of, um, maybe back then I was a bit wet, but, you know, I've always been a kind of lefty type and um, I could start to see that that was not really fitting in with, you know, my ideals. Um, and then we kind of get to, Fast forward to 2016, didn't think about it that much. And then we suddenly we have this referendum on the EU question and it just suddenly becomes really obvious, you know, what, what am I going to vote for? Well, I'm going to vote to leave because, it's, you know, what else would you do? You know, where I live with my friends, you know, from all well-educated living in London, you stick out a bit like a sore thumb, but, you know, all pro-Remain, even if they kind of understood my arguments, They'd say, oh, you know, you're different. You, you have different arguments. You know, that's not why other people are voting leave. But actually, if you talk to people across the country who vote for Brexit, the same things keep coming up. And, and the main things are, you know, democracy and sovereignty. Few people are interested in immigration, but actually that's bound up in the democracy question because that's something that has been taken off the table for so long in this country. You know, you cannot have an open debate about immigration. And even if you did, you can't change the policy anyway. So what would be the point? Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And we started with Brexit. Uh, we want to we want to stay away from that uh, as much as we can. Sure. Uh, but there is something that there. It's part of a bigger thing. Yeah. And uh, one of the things about you speaking French and German is you've done a lot of great reporting on the gilets jaunes, the yellow vests in France. And we really wanted to talk to you at length about mm. that. So for anyone who who just 
watched you know, BBC News one time a couple of months ago and said, oh, some French people don't want to work again. You know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, it, it, that is accurate, isn't it? That, that pretty much is accurate. <laughs> is it just that or is there a bit more to it? I think, you know, it, it, obviously it's, it's part of a wider European um, populist revolt. And, and you know, Brexit is, is one part of that. There's things going on in Italy, um, things it, it, even in countries like Sweden where we, we don't even expect there to be populist revolts. I mean, this is the French reaction. This is their version of it, I suppose. Um, it, it is extraordinary. I mean, it's not just a handful of people turning up um, protesting. This has been going on at the time of recording for 26 weeks. Every weekend, people have gone out in, you know, whatever the weather, including the winter, it started in November, and stood there and tried to make themselves visible. That's one of the exciting things about the Gilets Jaunes is that you, you cannot ignore these people anymore. They're, they're there. These are people who have been ignored in politics for a very long time. They don't live in the cities, so they're not, you know, connected into either the global economy or, you know, or democratic politics. They live in the kind of peripheries. They're, uh, as I often say, you know, just because they're, they're, because they're peripheral to uh, the cities, that means they've also become peripheral to politics in, in, in many ways. Um, they're not listened to. They have living standards are um, either stagnating or, or in decline. And nobody cares or nobody cared until they started to make their voices heard. Mm. And now this is going to sound flippant, but th yeah. there's a more serious point behind this. The French have always liked kicking off, haven't yeah. they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they always have. They've always, had, they've always liked a bit of a row. They've always loved a strike. You know, this episode of the podcast is just going to be me and you being racist against <laughs> yeah. French people. Isn't but it? that's acceptable. You can do the that. The French like onions and yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but I mean, it's a, it's a flippant comment, but there's a certain amount of truth to it. And how much is it that they do like you know, throw, you know, getting upset, yeah, throwing yeah. a strike, and how much of this is actually a genuine working class revolt against the you know. The upper classes. Well, I think you have to think about the the scale of it. I mean, yes, you're right. French people do protest a lot more than than we do, for instance. You know, they do go on strike a lot more than we do, and I think that's I think good on them personally. You know, why why should they put up with um, anything less than than what they what they deserve? Um, but the scale of it. I mean, this is the biggest revolt since 1968. You know, since the les événements as they call them, which changed French society. You know, enormously, it changed. Um, it basically ushered in the kind of modern era of you know f how we think of France today, and and this is and this is actually bigger potentially. You know, you're, you're talking. It started off with two hundred thousand people. You had hundreds of thousands of people after that. Still, tens of thousands of people, thousands of people going out week in, week in, week out. Um, it's been going on for over five months. And, and what's extraordinary to me is is the way that it just doesn't really get the kind of coverage you expect. You know, you mentioned the BBC earlier. You know, you, you, if this were Venezuela or something, it would be on television every day. But it's and it's only happening across the channel. It's a, it, it's not difficult for a journalist to go over there like I did. I spent thirty five pounds to get on a coach to go to Paris to go talk to people. It's not hard. And but that's not really happening. And and it's quite funny because there, there are these kind of rumours going around the internet, and and people have asked me, you know, there's a rumour in Britain that there's a D notice on the Gilets Jaunes that the government has banned, you know, newspapers from reporting reporting on it. And people have asked me about that. Completely untrue. The 
the truth is much sadder. People are just not interested. People in our establishment are not interested. People in the French establishment have to be interested because they're afraid of them and they're afraid of what might happen next. But, um, you know, it is, there is a recognition that these are the kind of wrong kind of people. These are the famous deplorables, mm. you know, the, the French deplorables, if you like. And so their needs, their interests, their demands do just sort of fall on, on deaf ears in a way. And what is it all about? Is it like a French Brexit where these are people who are against the EU? Or is it much more about, you know, as you said, the, the kind of people who've lost out through globalization, mm. just wanting to, you know, have a job, have a house, have a, a secure, stable future for themselves and their children, maybe opposed to immigration. Just tell us a little bit about what is their kind of, what is the core of their concerns? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, you know, the EU plays into it and the EU has, has played a role in the diminishing of their living standards. And certainly the euro in the last, you know, 10 years has has made it very difficult for, you know, the French economy and the French government to um, adapt to various changes. And, and that has a, had a real serious problem. You know, there there's serious economic causes. Lots of people are not only is there high unemployment, but people sort of know that if they lose their job now, that's it. These are people who have quite stagnant um, careers. They, or sorry, they don't even have careers at all. They have jobs, not mm. careers. Mm. You know, there's no advancement, and a lot of them feel. Some of them are, you know, nearing retirement age, and they have a sense that things aren't going to be better for the next generation, and that's intolerable. And we need to do something about it. And you know, in my view, I don't think that the problems of the French economy can be fixed within. European Union. There are some people in the Gilets Jaunes who are explicitly anti-EU. Um, there is a big crossover as well in the people who are protesting against the Gilets Jaunes and those who voted in 2015. In 2015, the French were asked to ratify the European constitution and most of them said no. They voted against it. It was then repackaged as the Lisbon Treaty and forced through onto them anyway. So, and there is a crossover between many of the people who are the Gilets Jaunes who will have, and who will have voted against that um, European constitution. It, but things are a lot less clear-cut because they, you know, it's a leaderless movement. It doesn't have an official manifesto. So it, it's hard to say that there is any specific demands other than the more general demand for high, greater living standards and a greater say in, in politics. And there's been criticisms from certain aspects or from certain parts of the left who've said that the Gilets Jaunes is a far right wing, uh, anti-immigration, yeah. you know, whatever, pro, yeah. you know, pro-Frexit, I think it is, movement. Where do you stand on that? Well, I think it's, it's interesting because the far right slur came out, you know, from basically from the French government within hours of people <laughs> turning up on the streets. They... they these people, as, as I said before, you know, these are the, the deplorables. These people don't have to open their mouth before someone has decided that they're far right. And actually, you know, if you look at the police reports, there's no significant far right influence. There's the far left have started to get a bit more interested in the Gilets Jaunes, which, you know, fine. And there's, there's also been, you know, some attempts by the trade union movement to do to make links with the Gilets Jaunes. But the idea that these people are, are far right is is ludicrous. I mean, some of them will have voted for the National Front in the past, you know. But then, what other options did they did they have? You know, it's it's like many people who have voted for UKIP. It, I don't think it's because they're necessarily racist or anything like that. But they have, you know, concerns that are not being 
addressed or you know they want an alternative to the part all the other parties that are all exactly the same and when i went out there it was interesting you know i asked i i try not to put ideas into anyone's heads yeah. so i just asked people what they were there for and it wasn't even that nobody even mentioned immigration right so it's not even like I, I agree, it's not racist to discuss immigration or even, you know, want immigration controls. I take a different view, but I don't think it's racist. They didn't even mention it. So I, I don't really see where this far-right idea comes from, other than as a kind of slur to dismiss these people as, um, you know, irrelevant and people that don't need to be listened to. It has become a bit of a slur, and it's interesting, Francis and I talk a lot about the working class on the show as well. Mm. Um, I wrote an article, I think you read in The Spectator, about yeah. the far right being used as a slur. This will be a few weeks ago now. Um, and one of the comments on it was, far right is now a label that people use to describe the working class. And I thought that was quite an interesting way of looking at it, because whenever, you know, if, if a member of the elite... Mm rebels against the mainstream narrative it's handled one way but if you have a large populist uprising of people who don't agree with the mainstream narrative they are automatically far right yeah i think that i think that's absolutely accurate and i think you know a good example of that might be the football lads alliance in britain you know nobody really knew what they were about but they were declared far right straight away you know what were they against they were against terrorism I mean, I think we're all against terrorism. We? I, I don't know. Do you need? Do, yeah. I, I mean, you know. But in fairness, you know, they want they want to make their voices heard because yeah. they don't think the issue's being taken seriously. But you know, it's 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 very strange that to be opposed to Islamists blowing children to bits in a, a pop concert is is a far right position. It, I mean, it's, it's it's bizarre. It's it's just. I think what it represents is the way that um, the working class. Um, I mean, not only have, you know, they lost out economically over the last 30 years or whatever, but mm. their status culturally has really been diminished, you know. And I think this is very true of, this is true of the Gilets jaunes, it's true, true of the Brexiteers. It's like these people are, these people are gammon, they're scum, they're uneducated, they don't understand the world, they don't understand how things should be. Um, I think, I think, yeah, far right, just, the, the slur far right just it embodies the way that these people are just not seen as um, important or worth listening to. What I find dangerous about that is that there are people who are far right. Of course, yeah. And, and then you get those two confused and suddenly no mm. one knows what far right means anymore because we do need the label of far right for people who are far right. Yeah. yeah. We have to be able to go, no, these people believe in white supremacy or mm. killing Jews or whatever. And they're different. But when you start to label massive groups of people, um, yeah. then that, that's a problem. Oh, it absolutely is a problem. And the problem is, I think, with the Gilets jaunes and with Brexit in this country is a lot of it is, like you said, is because people don't feel that they're represented. Nobody yeah. cares about them. And that the only way that they've got in order to make their voices heard is to literally go out on the streets, make mm. themselves mm. as visible as possible in order to have their voices heard. And that's a really dangerous situation politically to be in. That's right. And it's true that, you know, across Europe, the mainstream parties have been getting, becoming more and more distant from the, from the public and in particular the people they're supposed to represent. So this is a particular problem for the left, for the Labour, well, it's, it's emerging as a problem for the Labour Party, for the, the centre-left parties in Europe have been absolutely massacred over the past um, couple of years. You know, you see... The Socialist Party in, in France goes from being in government to winning only, you know, around 10% or something in the elections. Similar things happening in, in Greece with their centre-left party. 
And in the Netherlands and in Italy, the Democratic Party, again, sort of centre-left, Blairite Party, completely massacred in, in the polls. And there is this enormous distance between, you know, especially the centre-left parties in there and there now, who are now sort of representing a more middle-class urban intelligentsia rather than a kind of working class base. And it's really interesting that they almost, they wish that they didn't have to represent these working class people, actually. It's not, it's not that they're fretting about losing them particularly. Maybe some people are, but they, they almost feel morally tainted by having to represent these horrible working class people who are far right and hate immigrants and are homophobic, whatever, which they're not, of course. Mm. And, and you can really see that actually, it's really cl crystal clear in America um, with the Democrats. And if you listen to Democratic pollsters, there's this big argument between them as to whether they should even bother to represent the white working class. And there are people that say, we don't need them to win. We should just focus on these people. And there are obviously other more sensible people who say, you know, well, we, should rep we should be representing them anyway because they're working class people. That's what we're for, by the way. But they're genuinely people making arguments that oh, the, de the demographics are going to deliver us, you know, election victory after election victory anyway. Why do we need to bother with these deplorable people? And it's like they don't want their votes. It's like if, if, if those people vote for them, they're evil and tainted. Mm. It's completely bizarre. It's weird in this country as well, isn't it? Because yeah. Jeremy Corbyn, that's yeah. exactly the direction that Labour has gone under Corbyn. And Corbyn is an old trade unionist. Yeah. Right? Well, you know, the Labour has become more middle... Uh, the, the acceleration of you know, Labour becoming a bourgeois party has happened faster mm. under Corbyn than under Blair, which is extraordinary. Yeah. Extraordinary. Because, you know, there are many, the way that Corbyn is, is presented in the media is, is like he's kind of an old lefty, you know, that could... You know, I think with the right policies, with the right attitudes, could really have won back a lot of, you know, the Labour heartlands, you know, working class people in the north. But they're just not interested. They're much more interested in satisfying their kind of Remainer, London, educated I, I think one of the worst things about Corbyn is the fact that he's not honest about who he is in that he's pro-Brexit. Mm, mm. And everybody knows he's pro-Brexit. <laughs> well, it's yeah, like when Barry is, Manilow he... was like, hey, I'm straight. Everybody was like, no. <laughs> but it's that same thing. I think he is the, yeah, he has performed the biggest betrayal, in a way, of the two party leaders. You know, Theresa May was a Remainer, still a Remainer, still wants to deliver a Remain. <laughs> <laughs> but Corbyn has completely sold out his principles. You know, and there are other people in the top Corbyn team who are Brexiteers too. You know, they come from the Tony Benn school of Euroscepticism, which I think is, you know, really, um, that's kind of my view on it, you know, where you'd rather have um, a bad parliament than a good king. Uh, you know, his, his view was that we only lend politicians the vote and they shouldn't give, we let, you know, sorry, we lend politicians their power and for them to give it up to someone else who's unaccountable is, is unacceptable. Um, so Corbyn kind of comes from that tradition, but I just don't think he's that interested in it. I think he just has, I think he just has other priorities and is quite happy to, you know, abandon that particular principle. Well, yeah, he's got to crack down on the Jews. Now, <laughs> uh, but let's come back to the Gilets jaunes for a moment, yeah. uh, just because uh, I thought... Well, I thought you were going to say, let's come back to the Jews. Yeah, oh, definitely. <laughs> we can come back to the Jews every, every day, man. Um, the Gilets jaunes, one of the things that I think most people may have seen on the news when it mm. happened was the reaction 
yeah. from the government. Yes. Uh, because those were some troubling images that we were seeing. This was gen you know, physical force being used against people who were out there essentially protesting. So tell us a little bit about how the French government responded to yeah. these people amassing in the streets of Paris and other major cities and you know, speaking up for what, what they were concerned about. Yeah, well, the response to the Gilets jaunes has been incredibly authoritarian. And um, you know, the, the numbers of police on the streets on some weekends would actually match the number of protesters. So you'd have 80,000 protesters and 80,000 police. So one policeman per protester. And the police have been, on the whole, um, incredibly aggressive. Uh, they have been, you know, they have, they've caused a number of injuries. They're firing tear gas grenades. They have these weapons called flashballs, which are banned everywhere in Europe apart from France. And these are kind of um, rubber bullets. And they're supposed to be fired, you know, almost below the waist kind of thing, just that they're supposed to stun people. But the police have been firing them at people's heads and people have been losing their eyes. You know, scores of people have lost their eyes and, you know, will never recover from that. People have been losing their hands. Um, there's, a, there's a really good journalist uh, called David Dufresne on Twitter, and he has been collating all, the, all of the police um, aggressions that he can verify. And when I last checked, it was over 780 incidents of, um, you know, police aggression that could be verified. And I mean, this is extraordinary. You know, if this were happening in some dictatorship, it would be roundly condemned. It wouldn't be off the television screens. But because it's Macron, you know, who is well liked um, by, you know, the British establishment, by the establishments in other countries, it's not really talked about. It, and, and, it, and it's certainly, um, you know, I'm not aware of the British government having issued any kind of condemnation in, in a way that they would if it were, you know, some far-flung part of the world. And it's, not, it's also important to recognise it's, um, it's not just the physical authoritarianism. It's not just that people are being beaten up in the streets by police. There has also been crackdowns on social media. There's new um, laws against so-called fake news. Fake news just means news that the government doesn't like. It's, you know, it's quite interesting that um, within weeks of that law coming out, a, a campaign by the French government was banned by Twitter as fake news. So you know, the subjective nature mm. of fake mm. news is, is, um, is obviously there for all to see. You know, they've been... Twitter, for instance, have been under pressure from the government, been banning certain activists. Um, the government have also raided the offices of a newspaper called Mediapart. It's a left-wing newspaper, one of the few to stand up for the Gilets jaunes. And um, they've been issued with a court order to raid their offices um, to basically retrieve the sources of all of these journalists, which is you know, a big no-no in the supposedly free world. Um, Marine Le Pen could go to jail for tweeting about ISIS. Um, what for, did she say? I'm trying to think, what did she say? She, she tweeted some graphic images of um, ISIS beheadings to say, look, this is what ISIS are up to. She could go to jail for that. And she's a, you know, we don't, I don't like Marine I mean, I don't Le Pen. know Marine Le Pen well, but I assume she wasn't like, yeah, let's, let's have more of this, right? No. no. She was very much against them. Yeah, of no, course. I'd imagine. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Marine Le Pen, unpleasant politician, but. You know, she could go to jail. Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the leftist um, leader, his offices have been raided by the police. So there is an extreme authoritarianism, you know, coming over France, 
under the rule of Emmanuel Macron, supposedly the liberal strongman, the person who we were promised was going to stand up against populism and authoritarianism and uh, save Europe and European values. And I, it makes me incredibly sad to see what's, what's going on over there. Do you think this is the death throes of the EU project in many ways? I think it's the, I think it's the last gasp of um, that kind of, not necessarily the EU project. I mean, the EU, or the, the EU I think, will carry on. But in, certainly within nation states and within, within in, in national politics, I think Macron was the last hurrah for you know, the technocratic third way of doing politics. Whether populists in various countries are going to outright win elections is yet to be seen, but about one in three people, one in four people, depending on each election, are voting for populist parties in, in Europe now. And it'll be interesting to see what happens in the European elections coming up, because that could be a real bloodbath. Mm. Um, well, we'll see, because by the time this interview comes out, they probably would have happened. Okay. So the yeah. blood may well be flowing at this point <laughs> as people are watching this. Um, but it, it's, I mean, when you were talking about the injuries and all that stuff, I didn't know anything about this, yeah. to be honest mm. with you. I, I can't say I followed it that closely, yeah. but, but it's not like it was there in your face either. You mm. know, do you know what I'm saying? If you, if you watch the news, if you read the news, if you try and keep abreast mm. of all this stuff, you don't come across all this information. And it, what you're describing sounds a lot more like Russia than a Western European country to me. Yeah. Better think, food. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, you know, there's... You've there's, never tried <laughs> a, a, a good borscht, man. That's, that's <laughs> I mean, there's two sides to it. I mean, one is the indifference. Just people don't, are not, you know, in the media, are not particularly interested. But two is that there are, you know, a lot of Macron fanboys in the British media, including, you know, people who talk who write about France. Mm. Um, I won't name them, but, um, you know, they're there and they will say... I thought he was about to name them. And they will trot out the lines that these people are far right, that mm. these people are all um, violent, that they're all thugs and that actually the police have never started anything. Um, it was really interesting. Um, most recently, um, the government had to actually admit that it lied about one Gilets Jean story. So... <laughs> There was, um, there was video footage of uh, a load of yellow vests running into a hospital. So the government says, of course, look at these violent, vile, horrible people storming a hospital. How low can you get? It turns out that other footage shows that they were being chased into the hospital by police. And the government actually had to admit that, yeah, we got that. You know, that wasn't true. <laughs> we accept that version of events. <laughs> Before we touch on, uh, we're going to talk about internet censorship. Mm. How much of this, and, and I see it reflected in this country as a comedian, you go up and down this country and you, you play, you know, up north and wherever else in town and country. How much is this a, diff is a clash between the metropolitan elite and the people outside who essentially have been left behind by globalization and it's a backlash and they feel the elite don't care about them and they're right because they don't? I think, I think it's exactly that. I think I think that's um, you know I think I think that you can draw in outcome. I'm nervous about drawing parallels. I wouldn't draw, for instance, I wouldn't draw. Um, I, I think there's a lot of uh, similarity between the kind of people who voted for Brexit, the kind of people who vote for Trump, the kind of people who are voting five star in Italy, the kind of people who are um, you know marching in the streets of Paris in their in their yellow vests. The outcomes are obviously very different. Um, so. 
you know the the comparisons the the comparison is there certainly and yes they are you know these are the people who are ignored and i don't really like the phrase left behind um for for whatever reason is is something about it that because they're right it, behind yeah <laughs> yeah i think they were pushed behind yeah mm. you know i think that they've been deliberately quite deliberately cut out from politics not just you know we let you put we pause there because we wanted you to say something even more provocative so yeah i was thinking of saying we, something more. well the point i guess you're making is that it was much easier to have these working class voices that were often concerned about immigration let's say yeah rather yeah. than have the debate about immigration mm. you just go no no you're all a bunch of racists and that's much easier yeah and i and i think that um the liberal establishment have found this fantastic way of preserving their interests. You know, it's it's absolutely genius because you only have to criticise any aspect of the setup, and immediately you're derided as far right, racist, whatever. You know, it's it, the Gilets Jaunes is a pertinent example of that. You know, there's nothing to do with immigration, but it has to be about immigration in order to you know silence it. I guess um, if you are if you criticise the European Union. You know, this is a classic example, you're a racist. But the European Union is, in my view, quite a racist construct. The fact is that if you if you look at the external borders of Europe, they're, you know, some of the strongest in, in the world, some of the, um, you know, the longest fences and things like that. It's much worse than Trump's wall, what, what is happening in Europe. Thousands and thousands of people have died trying to get into Europe because the border is so militarized. That in North Africa, they are basically the European Union is paying um, militia to put people in camps or to basically round them up, and some people are being sold into slavery. That seems pretty racist to me. But if you do that and you support the European Union, you're you're immune from the charge of, of racism. Whereas a working class person who's concerned about immigration is a racist. Or Nigel Farage puts up a poster with a load of refugees on it, that's racist and that needs to be outright condemned. But if, the, you, know, but if you either support or preside over one of the most brutal borders in the entire world, well, you're not racist because you're, you're supporting this wonderful project. So the, it's, there's, an entirely, <laughs> there's an entirely selective use of, yeah. of words like racist and, and mm. far right. And, and, and I think it's to the benefit of... Um, of basically, yeah, the liberal elites. They, they've, they've created a moral force shield um, for their ideas and for their way of life and for their setup. Re reading that article you wrote in Spite, I, what actually I found quite affecting was you talking about the poverty the Gilets Jaunes live in mm. and then how much money Macron spent at this time, I yeah. think in order to refurbish his offices. That was what everyone was annoyed about. <clears throat> that, um, the week, um, one of the weeks that I went, everyone, everyone was saying, you know, Macron had spent, yeah, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of euros refitting his carpets. And it, you know, it played, it played into this image of Macron, which I think is quite real, of him as a kind of almost monarchical figure. They call him the president for the rich, which I think is quite true. Um, but he he doesn't help himself because he has this haughty attitude, and he does you know he he thinks that he deserves to be able to refit his carpet for hundreds of thousands of euros at, at the taxpayers' expense. He thinks that um, you know he basically wants to transform France into a kind of nation of startups, where you know we're all just 
sitting in Paris with on our laptops. And I mean, it has no connection to real people's lives. He's very rude to poor people. You know, he, he can't even have a normal conversation with an ordinary person. He, he um, you know, he, he slagged off a bunch of factory workers as illiterate. He, um, he was talking to a young unemployed farmer and just says, well, I can get you a job. Why don't you just walk down the street? He once described um, the people that are left behind, so to speak, as people who are nothing. And that was when he was trying to be nice about them. <laughs> uh, so it's good to see some of the Gilets Jaunes saying, you know, we're the nothing people. It, but, it um, sounds like uh, yeah. the Russian former president, now Prime Minister, Dmitry Medvedev, he went to Crimea and there, he was surrounded by all these old ladies. And they were all <laughs> saying, look, we have no money. Can you raise our pension? Yeah. And he went, sorry, there's no money left and got in his helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> A similar, a similar thing. A similar thing happened with Macron. There was the pensioners, you know, pensioners assailing Macron, and he's like, "Well, I don't understand what you're complaining about." They have, you know, their pensions are nothing. It's like people are living on pensioners, especially living on, you know, a few hundred euros a month. And he's saying, "Well, what do you want me to do about it?" Right. Let's move on, but let's pause because I, I realized I set an alarm instead of the timer. So, in the do you 20, see what I'm working with? <laughs> highly skilled professional. Um, so we've got about 25 minutes left. Okay, and now um, we'll, so see we'll, we'll go into... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you okay. want to do it? Yeah, yeah, I'll do it. Okay, cool. Are we ready to start rolling, Anton? Right, you touched on earlier about the fact that, you know, fake news and yeah. internet censorship. And before, I think there's been a little bit of a sea change now and that more and more people are seeing the way certain posts get censored. Mm. How big is the, of this is a problem at the moment and is it going to get worse, do you think? I think it's a massive problem at the moment. I mean, we've already seen Facebook um, in the week that we're recording this or, or maybe, the week, maybe it was the week before, have banned a number, a number of people who they've called uh, dangerous individuals. Uh, people like uh, Paul Joseph Watson, uh, Louis Farrakhan, the... Um, preacher uh, and who else I mean Alex Jones is already banned but now you can't even um, you can't even praise Alex Jones I don't know who'd want to praise Alex Jones but, but you're not allowed to do it um, <laughs> I find him so funny isn't he? he's Do hilarious it? I don't he's know ridiculous. I, who, who could find him dangerous who could find a man that rants about you know water turning the frogs gay and say that man is dangerous yeah. and he's I think it's funny yeah um so there's that. I mean, Twitter has banned a number of people from Tommy Robinson to Carl Benjamin and all these. You know, and you might say, oh, we don't like these people, whatever, who cares? But what I find really worrying is that these, you know, mega companies in Silicon Valley um, are now, now seem to have taken on the role of the censor. And they can now decide what is acceptable speech and what is unacceptable speech. And they have absolutely no accountability to us, you know, we can, you know, put pressure on them, I guess. We can um, write lots of tweets about it. Um, until you get banned. Until you get banned. Yeah. I, um, I, f I find that really dystopian. And, and what what is most bizarre is that actually people have been arguing for this to happen for a very long time. You know, lots of people from across the political spectrum have said the problem with Facebook and Twitter is that there's so much fake news. There's so many... Um, you know, there's too many Russian trolls. There's too many, um, too much racism. Yep, I agree. Too much, <laughs> too much hate speech. Yeah. And what are they going to do about it? And now they're doing something about it, and it actually is incredibly dystopian and scary. And it's going to get worse because the government's going to get involved too. And Britain has set out a white paper called the, it's called the Online Harms White Paper, 
And basically, it's setting out proposals to have some of the most highly regulated internet access in the um, so-called free world. Actually, it's probably even worse than China, because at least in China, you can go on a VPN and you can access what you like. Don't tell the Chinese authorities, I, I told you that. <laughs> but, um, but in Britain, they want to have the power to, you know, fine websites if they don't remove posts and even take down some websites entirely. And, you know, I can I can sympathize with people who say, oh, well, you know, who cares? Who cares if Facebook gets a big fine? Who cares if Twitter gets a big fine? They're just, um, you know, big tech, whatever. It, it, it's been posed as this war on big tech. But really, you know, it's a war on us because, you know, social media, it's not Mark Zuckerberg mouthing off. It's, it's me and you and people we know and, you know, your friends and family who are, who are you, you know, who occupy social media and who, who use it to, to speak their mind. So it's always a war on the user at the end of the day. Well, shit rolls downhill, right? So yeah. if they crack down on Zuckerberg, he's going to crack down on yeah. all of us. Yeah. Because and if, he's going to have to try and protect himself against the consequences of Fraser exactly. saying the wrong thing on Facebook. Exactly. Yeah. So, so what it's going to do is it will make those platforms more censorious because they'll want to avoid getting fined. And now they've, they've tried similar things in, um, in other countries. So Germany has a law called the Netzdege, which is which is the first of uh, sounds so first funny. It does sound why. funny. All German words sound funny. <laughs> yeah. um, and and it's you know an anti hate speech kind of uh, law, and it it could fine companies you know tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of euros if they host hate speech. And so it just it, the the effect that it has had is that Facebook is now just taking down posts left, right, and centre, trying to cover its ass. And one really funny outcome. We shouldn't laugh, because, but you know, maybe maybe we can take some joy in this, is that the minister who came up with the law and who was promoting the law had one of his tweets taken down. <laughs> yeah. Because they didn't want to get fined. He'd called an opponent an idiot. This was deemed to be hate speech. <laughs> it was taken down. Oh, God. But, right, okay. So I, I agree with what you're saying. I'm going to put forward the counter-argument now, yeah. which is if we look at the Christchurch massacre, which yeah. was obviously awful, there yeah. was allegations, and I think it's widely accepted that he was, you know, radicalized online with certain, you know, numbers of far right uh, mm. websites and all the rest of it. And 4chan, I think, was involved as well. Surely, do people not be, need to be protected from these types of hateful far right groups, especially vulnerable young people? Well, if these groups are out there, I want to know about them, and I want to know how we can counter them. And actually, it's better potentially if they're on Facebook and Twitter where other people are than if they're shunted off to 4chan where no normal people are on, you know, these kind of, well, maybe I'm going to get in trouble now with those, <laughs> they're going to hate me. But, um, but you, do, you know, if, it's, it's funny, it's like when a lot of the people were banned from Twitter and Facebook, they started moving to Gab, and um, which is like this kind of free speech social network. But if you go on Gab, it's only these people. Yeah. You know, so it's full of, um, you know, it's not, I mean, it's not entirely just hate speech or anti-Semitism or whatever, but there's, there's quite a lot of it. But there's no, there's none of us around that could ever challenge it. You know, it's, so it just happens underground mm. and, and that makes the problem worse inevitably. That's what I did. I went on Gab, I checked it out and after like 10 minutes I was like, no, no, 
I don't want to be here. And yeah. I left because yeah. it is full of race, genuine racism and, yeah. and all people saying the most horrible shit that they can think of. And like you say, no one is there to challenge them. But let's explore another counter argument, which comes up a lot, yeah. which is we, we love freedom, don't we, Fraser? Yeah, you we love do, freedom, yeah. don't you, Francis? I love freedom, don't I? These are companies private companies pursuing their free will to have people on the platform that they want. You know, if you ran a shop, well, actually, if you ran a shop, you would be forced to do things. But, I mean, they're, they're, they're companies doing what they are free to do with their own subscriber base. What's your issue with that? God, this is the dreaded libertarian argument. I can't stand these people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, have a lot of, I have a lot of libertarian leanings, but I'm getting increasingly irritated by quote-unquote libertarians these mm. days. No, I think I think that there is a point at which Facebook and Twitter and YouTube or whatever, and that point is now, that they get so large that they are the new public square in a sense. You know, you cannot get by in politics, a lot of businesses. Um, you can't really have a normal social life sometimes if you are not on one of these platforms. And so to deny someone the you know, platform to be on there. If you, you, you're, it's like you're casting them out of public life entirely these days. So I, I, so I don't think that, um, you know, I, I don't really care. I, I don't care about the property rights of Mark Zuckerberg anyway. But even if you were concerned about that, um, I think the, it's a much bigger, you know, the, the problem for public debate is a much bigger issue. So what you're then opinion. saying inevitably is we need regulation of the internet. No, I'm not saying that either. So that's an interesting, but I think that because I know that, you know, when we have regulation, it's not going to be in a free speech direction and it's, it's never going to happen. Um, governments are only interested in regulating to clamp down on free speech. And I, I simply cannot see, you know, there's no way that you could have like a, you couldn't really have an internet first amendment or anything like that. I don't think it would work. But I think it's up to us to really, you know, put pressure on these these companies to say that there is an alternate view to the Twitter mob who just wants everyone to be shut down. To say that, you know, we we value all voices, even the ones we hate, because we believe in free speech, and to say, you know, and and for that to be a kind of competing um, idea. I, I think touching on what what you're saying, I think the problem is is the illiberalness of the sort of the liberal elite who we talk about. Yeah. And you see it in cancel culture. Yeah. And we saw it in particular the case of Michael Jackson. Of course, there were all those mm. allegations that came out about him and all the rest of it, and people were up in arms. And and then they were saying, right, we need to cancel it. We need to get yeah. rid of Jackson. We need to everything. And it was just, you know, how if you don't want to listen to Michael Jackson's music, that is entirely up to you. But how dare you say to every other person, you are not allowed to listen to it, and I am going to be the moral arbiter of whether you have the choice or not. Well, that's the thing. I mean, we have these self-appointed, um, you know, moral arbiters. These kind of, it's like new, the new Mary Whitehouses, in a way. It's it's the book burning mentality, essentially. It's it's the it's the idea that we're all so stupid and vile that you know, not only do I not have to listen to this because it will upset my mental health. I, I I couldn't care less if people think that. Whatever, um, do your own thing. Don't listen to it. But it's that other people need to be shielded from it because they will, you know. Either it will hurt their feelings or it will, um, you know, give them bad ideas and, and, and that everyone else is unthinking, unable to um, challenge the things that they see and read, unable to do anything other than simply absorb and agree with it and, you know, become this internet troll over time because there's so much, there's so much hate out there and we're all going to just 
turn into walking Pepe the frogs if, unless, unless this stuff is banned and we put a stop to it right now. And, and the danger is that we're actually we, you know, we lose our ability to argue. Uh, and that's what I'm quite worried about. I'm not confident that a 18-year-old now today um, could make actually a coherent argument against racism because they never have to do it. Mm. Never heard one, right? It's just ban, ban, ban. And that, you know, that it, that is what is making us, it's, it's going to make us stupid in the long term. It's going to make us um, unable to respond to much more serious political challenges. Because in the end, you know, we can't just pull the plug on if, you know, if a, if a far right movement were to emerge. We're not just going to be able to pull the plug on it. It doesn't work like that. You can't just ban it into existence. I mean, my favorite analogy, I guess, is hate to make Nazi analogies. But it is true that there were laws against hate speech in Weimar Germany. These big politicians were constantly getting banned, you know, banned for their views on X, Y, Z. It didn't stop it. It didn't help. In fact, it made it worse because they were able to pose as defenders of, of the truth. You know, think about Tommy Robinson, right? He, the fact that he is persecuted by the British state, which which he is, um, I'm not a fan of his, but I think that's true, gives him more credence because it says, you know, these are the things I'm saying what they don't want you to hear. And, you know, therefore I'm the person telling the truth and they are the liars. So, you know, we have to be really, really careful with censorship. Censorship is more dangerous than free speech. I always take it back to a few, about six or seven years ago, maybe about eight, eight years ago, when they had Nick Griffin on Question Time. Yeah. And he was just destroyed. It was a fantastic moment. Yeah, he was destroyed. And any chance of him being a credible political force evaporated mm. because if you were a sound mind, you just looked at him and you went, oh, you're clueless and out of your depth. Yeah. And uh, yeah, no, and, and, and you, need to be, you need to be able to expose wrongness in order to tackle it. You know, you can't just assert that something is is bad and and you know shunt it away. The the Nick Griffin episode is is you know is exactly that I think. But I'm curious about your point about not not needing regulation and being worried about it because obviously I understand mm. the mistrust of government hundred yeah. percent. Uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, I think this idea that you know trigonometry and spiked <laughs> and and uh, you know a few other people who care about free speech are just going to get together and put pressure on Twitter and Facebook and Google. Well, to... we've got a meeting with Zuckerberg on Friday, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, we have about <laughs> about our future upcoming bans <laughs> about how we're going to get banned from everything. But the, the, I think this idea that there's going to be enough of us putting that pressure. Um, I don't see that as a credible way to deal with... I mean, look at... As you know, I'm not a big fan of Donald Trump, but if you look at that leaked Google meeting video, did you ever see that? Was that the the kindly censor one or something like that? Uh, I don't remember, but basically the day after, they had a massive meeting after Trump's election in yeah. 2016, and they were all in tears crying and going on <laughs> yeah. about how uh, we must never let this happen again. Yeah. Right? This is pe people at Google. Because they think that they did it. Yeah. They, thi they think they allowed much... it. Yeah. No, yeah. but they, they honestly think that highly of themselves mm. that they, you know, created this monster or whatever. I mean, it's nothing to do with them. So I don't, but my point is, I don't think that people respond to incentives, mm. right? I don't think you and me and a few other people complaining about the need for free speech is ever going to be a strong enough incentive for a huge tech company to allow people the freedom to speak, which is why I think 
we will eventually have to have some kind of First Amendment for the internet right. of some kind. Well, I think I think what we need is is uh, you know you're right. A few of us talking about it is not going to change change the world. But what we need is a broader cultural shift. You know, we we the the problem is that culturally free speech is not valued, mm. and um, there's no reason why it couldn't be in in future. I mean, the th the thing you know the the First Amendment is a good example because. You know, obviously, there is a First Amendment in America, but it's not as if, um, you know, you go on a college campus or whatever and they have free speech. Far from it. Right? There is a real, there's a hostility to free speech um, among a lot of um, young, politically active people. And, you, you know, you can't tackle that through, through legal means. That requires um, a cultural change. And, you know, it's going to be a hell of a lot of work. It's not going to you know, come easy at all. Well, I'm not sure I agree with you, though, because we had Jeffrey Miller on the show, who you may know, and he was talking about free speech on campuses in America. And one of the things he was talking about is actually Donald Trump yeah. has put in, he's put in threats and he's made threats that universities or colleges that don't uh, uphold the First Amendment principles will lose funding and stuff yeah. like that. So the law, if it's correctly calibrated, can be used to... Uh, mandate freedom. It can be used to do that. If you have a law, for example, that says that you can't murder me for what mm. I say, that allows me to speak freely in a way that I otherwise might not. I mean, my view is that a, a free speech crackdown is kind of a contradiction in terms. And it's something we tried in, in, in Britain, actually. I remember talking about it a couple of years ago. You know, the government put out this thing, you, you know, we're going to promote free speech on campus. It didn't go anywhere. Um, it's not going to change. It's not going to win hearts and minds. And it's not going to, um, it's not going to stop people from thinking, you know, the underlying ideas, the underlying ideas, which are, which are the problem, which are that today people think that speech is violence or, you know, that hurt feelings are the end of the world, that, um, uh, the you know speech inevitably leads to disastrous bad speech inevitably leads to disastrous outcomes and people also just seem to think that speech can't be countered with more speech um so i i think it's a more f fundamental um battle than anything that could be solved by the you know the flick of a pen and why do you think free speech we talk about it a lot and immediately, it, again, the far right slur yeah, comes yeah. up, and then you know they, they always joke about it. With, with you know, people make slurs about you know trigonometry. Go, oh, they're right wing. They're obsessed with free speech. Why? Why is wanting a freedom of speech right wing? It's because of your voice, mate. <laughs> yeah, I do have a racist. Voice. I don't think there's anything right wing about it. I mean, it's a, it's an incredibly, um, it's actually a really radical idea. You know, the idea that everyone should. Um, this should be allowed to speak, that should be permitted to speak and should, um, you know, should be trusted to listen to everyone, mm. right? I mean, it's traditionally, it has been the right that has sought to clamp down on free speech, um, you know, whether that's through censorship of the theatre or, you know, we had Mary Whitehouse in the 80s complaining about sex and all that stuff. Um, it's only, I suppose, there's always been censorious elements in the left, of course. I mean, we had Stalinism, for Christ's sake. It's not, you know... Um, but it, it's interesting that in the 60s in America, you know, you had a lot of um, radicals and kind of hippie types who were very pro-free speech. Um, uh, and they recognized that free speech was um, a tool for them to um, effect social change and to, you know, make the changes that they wanted. There would be no civil rights movement without free speech. There'd be no feminist movement without free speech because... Let's ban it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <Yeah. laughs> Sorry, that's uh, Constantine's Russian side coming out. But, I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's, 
it, it, so it, it, it's um, it's a recent shift, I guess. Um, that I, th I think it, I think at the moment, I think you know, to be honest, I think there are a lot of people on the right who are maybe bad faith defenders of, of free speech, and um, you know, it's it's politically convenient at the moment to, for them to defend free speech because they are the ones being censored um, in a different. Um, in a different time, maybe would it be the left standing up for free speech because they're being censored? It's interesting. I mean, to talk about the the one instance where I've heard someone from the Labour Party in the last few years talk about free speech was in relation to the anti-Semitism scandal, where they say, "But why can't we say what we like about Israel and um, you know Zionism and stuff like that?" And you're right. Yeah, why shouldn't they say what they like? But they wouldn't defend free speech in any other circumstance. Mm. So, you know, I. There are there are obvious, the, the free speech is not so much a left right issue, but I think who supports it, who's against it, um, depends very much on where we are, you know, in a period of time. And at the moment, the you know culturally the right are on the back foot, and so have to, um, and so it's their speech that's being suppressed, and we need to defend their free speech. And that's what happens is uh, you, we seem to be in this world now where we play this association game all the time yeah it's like oh you believe in free speech who else believes in free free speech yeah. let's ignore all the people in the middle let's go to the far right oh you and this guy believes in free and and it's always about like who can you associate with this particular view and we're constantly playing this like six degrees of white supremacy like yeah. how do you connect this person <laughs> that'd be a great board game in great, six, great. Six, six degrees of white supremacy but what i particularly wanted to ask you about is this culture of fear that has now started, yeah. which I've seen a lot. And, you know, I work in comedy where it's ultra liberal and then you do the classic over the shoulder, blah, blah, blah. I was in, uh, last week, I was in a burger restaurant with my girlfriend and a chap sat down next to me, recognised me from trigonometry, um, looked over his shoulder and said, thank you for what you're doing, mm. and then went, almost whispered but you know you're going to get banned like everyone else <laughs> and we do live in this culture of fear where we worry about you know things being said or misinterpreted mm. and saying things which aren't controversial in any shape or form but worrying that it's going to get overheard and people are going to lose jobs our careers our reputations are going to get damaged yeah i think i think that's absolutely right and i think i think that what is really interesting what's been really interesting over the last few years is that free speech did seem a bit of um you know, I've always been a fan of free speech, but it was once a bit of a niche issue. It's like what people would say to me, you know, when I, I'm, I'm actually a bit bored about talking about college campuses now because it's like, no, this is the real world now. But when I was talking, when I was talking about that years ago, people said to me, why do you care? I was like, well, because there are going to be real consequences if we let this happen. And now ordinary people, you know, who have very normal average opinions, sometimes in the majority opinion, feel as if they cannot speak you know, feel as if they cannot speak their minds normally and just say what they think. And that's really, really scary. And that's really, really troubling. I was doing some research for my Edinburgh show, which I'm doing mm. about this whole SOAS behavioral agreement form yeah. uh, uh, contract. And uh, last year in Russia, because I want to contrast what's happening in the UK with what's happening in Russia, 400 people were arrested for things they said online. Yeah. Right. Do you know how many people were arrested in this country for things they said online last no. year? No. I, I, well, it's 3,300. Yeah. Wow. And when Nine I tell... Nine people per day. Yeah. When I tell people this, mm. they, they can't... No, I, there is not a single person that I've said this to, left liberal... Right wing, centre, whatever. Mm. There's not a single person who has not gone. What the fuck? Yeah, 
Uh, yeah. But people don't know this, right? So I think a lot of people say to you, well, why do you care about free speech? Because they, they don't really understand the scale of what's happening. Yeah. And I, and I think it, it you know, I th but I think because, because of the scale of it and when you, you know, when you point these things out to people, I think people realize that it is actually something that affects you and you and me and your mum and your, you know, your grand. Well, it definitely whatever. affects my mum. Yeah, <laughs> because it's not just, it, it, honestly, it isn't just about far-right agitators anymore. Mm. It's, it's about completely normal opinion. I mean, you know, th think about the way that people... Um, might suppress their views on on Brexit, which most people are in favour of. Think about the way that people might express, might you know, suppress their views on the trans issue. Right, most people, in if you look at polling, don't think that men can become women overnight. They're not bigots for thinking that. They just think that, and you know, but you can't express that view because it's um, hate speech or whatever. You know, perfectly normal. But is it is it Fraser? Hold on. The counter argument might be: Well, look, you're free to express your opinion yeah. about Brexit, yeah. and the fact that your neighbour might not like you and throw a dog poo over the garden wall <laughs> doesn't mean that you are being censored. Well, I think if there a a it is possible to be censored. Um, I mean, there there censorship doesn't just come from you know the state slamming its boot on your face. There are there are many ways that people can be you know silenced whether it's just through um you know the through fear through you know feeling that you can't express a certain view um there is also you know low level kind of <laughs> low level policing of these things as well with, with around hate incidents so technically someone has been reported to the police for voting for brexit and the police have recorded that as a hate incident so it can happen um there's no consequences to that for you legally but that's pretty scary, right? Mm. Or, you know, there was a guy who posted a, a limerick about um, transgenderism on his, on his Twitter, and he gets a phone call from the police. They're not going to arrest him, but that's still pretty scary. You know, they fi find out where he works, and, you know. So there is a kind of creeping authoritarianism that I think, I think that people should, you know, people are right to be a bit wary of, right to be afraid of. Whether people are being censored directly is, you know, by the by, I guess. But I, I, the point I've made to people as well is, look, even if someone got arrested and then didn't get prosecuted, yeah. if you arrest 3,000 people a year yeah. for saying something and you don't then prosecute them, that is still the government intimidating citizens into not doing something. Because yeah. if you were to, to do something and got arrested for it five times yeah. and never prosecuted, you'd still be worried about it. Yeah. Right? Well, you'd be worried. I mean, it's, 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 you know, you could be arrested, you could be sacked. You could be at the end of a Twitter storm, right? It doesn't even involve the government or your employer, but you, you would feel so much, you know, the pressure on you to shut up and to stop saying what it is you're saying or to recant for what you've said is so great that it does, you know, amount to a form of censorship. Mm. We've got time for one more question. Yeah, we we've got, and it's, it's a question we always end on, um, which is what's the one thing we're not talking about that we really should be talking about as a society? Bloody hell. Um, that's a big one. I, I haven't thought of one. Yeah, uh, it's all right. Can I have a second? Can I have a second? Yeah, 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 yeah have, a second. Yeah, have oh, a second. Oh, by um, the way, I realised we talked about Brexit, and we, yeah, we wrote to remain because we're good people. Yeah. We needed to get it in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we always do that. We're actually going to bring out a range yeah. of T-shirts. Yeah, we voted for remain. We're good people. Yeah, because yeah. we're, <laughs> we're good people. Yeah, so we display our virtue wherever nice. we go. Because that, that is the selling point of remain, isn't it? Yeah. You're a good person. Yeah, no, that's it. Yeah, that's that's what they're all there for. Yeah, yeah. I go. I you know I went to the 
remain March, and it's it's scary how many good people there are. <laughs> um, the one thing that people aren't talking about is, I think, uh, class. And it's interesting that in an age of identity where we are, and, and of intersectionality, I suppose, the thing that we're obsessed with dividing people into these little boxes of race, sexuality, gender, and we'll even invent new boxes for you know people who, who, um, who fancy it. But we, we, what we really ignore is, is class, and I think it's really important because it's not, it's not just an identity, actually. And, and if it was an identity, I wouldn't, I wouldn't care about it. Um, it's, it's about your position in society. And I think that, you know, one thing that the kind of identity politics of, um, of the elite has really done successfully is to mask those divisions. You know, I think that's the real dividing line. Um, and, and they've managed to almost paper over the cracks ever so nicely. And if you obviously speak up about these things, then you're in trouble because you're a bigot, because you're questioning, you know, you, you, as I said before, you know, they, they have this moral force field around, around them and you can't question them. And yeah, so class is the, the one thing that I think that people should be talking about, be thinking about a lot more. And, you know, it should inform how people see the world. Oh, God, France is going to keep banging on about his working class roots. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I've taught in Croydon, mate. <sighs> uh, uh, what, are you, what time are you setting? What time am I setting? I'm setting the working for, class. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I've got three seconds. I'm working class again. <laughs> yeah. Is that no, what you're going to do? I'm not. I'm lower middle class, actually. Oh. But there we go. Oh, I see banging on about class again. Anyway. Yeah. You can't win. No, I, I can't win. All right, Fraser, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a brilliant interview. Uh, follow uh, Fraser uh, on Twitter. Uh, remind us your Twitter handle. At Fraser Myers. At Fraser Myers. On Twitter, read his articles uh, and spiked. And you write for Medium as well, don't you? Um, you don't. Okay, okay. we'll come back. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, also as well, you've got a spiked podcast if you want to promote it. Uh, yeah, it's um, it's called The Spike Podcast. So, yeah. And we do that every Friday. Um, we talk about three different, you know, exciting and spicy topics in the news. So check it out. Yeah, check it out. Absolutely. As always, follow us on all the social media at TriggerPod. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Click the bell button next to the subscribe button to make sure you get notified when a video comes out. And as Francis always likes to remind us, a lot of people are getting randomly unsubscribed from our channel. So if that is you, please, please, please comment on the YouTube video or send us a tweet if you're a listener and we'll complain to YouTube and they will do absolutely nothing. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> and and I, I thought about doing this actually as a social experiment. We got uh, a brilliant clip we had was of Andrew Doyle talking about woke comedy. Mm. And it got, uh, it refused to get promoted by Facebook, right? And they would just say because it contravened their terms and conditions. And I'm going to do something. I'm going to want to do, let's see if we can try and make that clip go viral. So with our fan, like if you listen to, if you listen to trigonometry or you watch it, you've got a Twitter account, you've got a Facebook. Tomorrow, I'm going to put it up. We're going to tag lots of people. Let's see if we can make it go viral against those bastards' best wishes. Sounds great. Oh, speaking of work comedy, yeah, I'm doing a show in Edinburgh, Francis. Yes, you are. You are. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, this is where you say something nice about it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's going to be great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you bastard. Yeah. Uh, 
But yeah, wh where is it? And uh... it's it's called Orwell that ends well. It's about uh, freedom of speech, and it's going to be at 7 p.m. at the Gilded Balloon. Tickets are already on the Edinburgh Fringe website, so grab yourself a ticket. Um, yeah, we'll see if I can get Francis to squeeze in a joke. Okay, right, absolutely. Yeah, it's going to need some. No, it's not. It's going to be brilliant. <laughs> Go and watch it. But guys, thank you so much, and we'll see you next week. Bye bye. See you in a week. Bye bye. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.